We are Irresistible. A community of practice in collective healing and social change. Because our commitment to justice and to our own lives is compelling, joyful, and irresistible. Together, we celebrate the many traditions of movement leaders, cultural workers, and spiritual teachers who remind us to embody the liberation we are pursuing and who show us that our movements for justice can and must be expansive, vibrant, and alive. Because we are so much more than resistance. We are irresistible. Hey everybody, I'm Kate Warning, and welcome to Irresistible, a podcast formerly known as Healing Justice. You can hear more about what we're about and the legacies that led us to our new name in a previous episode called Becoming Irresistible. If you're new here, this is like our 101 curriculum to hanging out in this community, so check it out. So each week we share a conversation or an audio practice to support your healing and commitment to social justice. And this episode is really special. It is publishing on April 28th, 2020, which continues to be an intense time here in the United States. We are in the middle of shelter in place uh, restrictions here, and it's been for me about six weeks since really serious shelter in place has started where I am. And so we're starting to hit a stride in this season of pandemic. We are seeing the curve flattening in a few places in our country, and yet we still have a ways to go. And one of the things that has been kind of in my awareness or kind of creeping up on me a little bit throughout this time is the deep awareness of how much we need to face grief and loss and hard emotions during this time. And maybe that started out and continues to be in a big sense, in a vague sense, in a loss of what we imagined we'd be doing now, a loss of freedom to move, a loss of connection with many people that we love and care about, a loss of all the plans and strategies our organizations had worked so hard to develop for this year, such a critical political year. And as the pandemic continues, for many of us, this grief and this loss becomes very literal and very close to home. I know many movement folks who we love, many people in our communities are, are losing folks, are experiencing death in our immediate circles or extended circles due to this pandemic, or maybe are just experiencing that normal life level of loss, people passing away due to causes maybe not related to COVID-19, but this season makes it that much harder to feel each other and to grieve and to process our emotions in the ways we normally would when we can gather in person. And so we've had this sense here at Irresistible that we really want to be looking out for our community and how we're processing that grief and that heaviness and all of the things that come with times of deep not knowing, a real feeling into how little we actually know and can predict. And we were so excited when our friends at Faith Matters Network reached out and said, hey, we're doing this conversation with Roshi Joan Halifax, who is a very well-known Buddhist teacher and Zen priest and anthropologist who is well-known for speaking about end-of-life care and grief and loss and death and dying. And so our friends of Faith Matters invited us to join this conversation. That's part of their community conversations that happen in connection with their uh, mapping project in the fields of healing and justice that you can learn more about in the show notes. And we recorded this conversation in mid-April with Roshi Joan Halifax. So a little bit more about Roshi. She's lectured on the subject of death and dying at many academic institutions and medical centers around the world. And as a founding teacher of the Zen Peacemaker Order and founder of Prajna Mountain Buddhist Order, her work and practice for more than four decades has focused on engaged Buddhism. 
She has written five books on Buddhism, compassion, and death, and the most recent one was published on May 1st, 2018, so just two years ago, and it's called Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. So I love that image of standing at the edge because this edge kind of between where we've been and where we're going um, is this place of unknowing that we find ourselves in right now. And so all of that being said, I want to pass the mic over to um, a person I deeply admire, Reverend Jennifer Bailey, who you're going to hear introduce herself and talk about the important work of Faith Matters Network, and then be joined by Kareen Luck, who is an incredible organizer and also part of the Faith Matters uh, team. And then we'll hear for the majority of the time from Roshi Joan Halifax. So let's listen in. My name is Reverend Jennifer Bailey, and I'm the founder and executive director of Faith Matters Network. We are an organization based in Nashville, Tennessee, that works with faith leaders, community organizers, and activists, helping cultivate a sense of what has felt really important in this season of our country's life, um, spiritual sustainability and sustenance for our movements and our world. You are joining uh, our Community Conversations, which are a monthly series that we have um, put together through our Rooted in Resilience project, which really is ex about exploring the intersections between social justice, spiritual practice, and social healing work. And so I am so delighted to welcome you all into this space, into our community. You are not strangers anymore, as we say in my community. Y'all are family. And so we are so grateful to have you join our family. And so with that, I get to pass it off to my, my dear colleague and beloved one, Kareen Luck, who will help guide this conversation for us. My name is Kareen Luck. I am talking to you here from Brooklyn, New York. And uh, I work with, with Jen on the Rooted and Resilience Project. I am also an organizer and uh, a, a campaign strategist, and I work with uh, different movements uh, and groups uh, to build um, meaningful and uh, vibrant uh, social justice uh, campaigns and movements for really so, so we can be building a society that works for all of us. Um, I am so thrilled today um, that we have uh, Roshi Joan Halifax with us for this Rooted in Resilience community conversation. Um, we have heard from so many people, of course, right, that one of the um, biggest uh, and most urgent questions of, of this time is, is how, before we skip ahead to this quote-unquote opening of the economy, how do we how do we be with the with the grief and the suffering and the pain that is being experienced by by so many at this time um this is something that obviously in our sort of this culture in in this country in the united states uh, death and dying is still not something that's sort of spoken about openly and and grief is not something that's always spoken about openly um and so we are really uh happy to be able to, to create this space in, in this difficult time. Um, I will say I have, um, I personally uh, was accompanying uh, my dad on his journey with ALS a few years ago um, and uh, Roshi's um, book, Being With Dying, as well as her teachings and as well as sitting in the Upaya Zen Center in, in the mountains of New Mexico uh, that Roshi Jen founded herself um, was, was beyond invaluable. And I actually, um, I don't know how I would have done the process without the teachings and without, without Upaya and the wisdom. So um, for me, this is a personal uh, a treat and honor and, and a real, um, hopefully, an offering to, to this community that we've built together. The big question for everyone, sort of the meta question, really, uh, Roshi, is um, how, do we, how do we approach this time? How do we be with, with the grief and, and the suffering in this moment? Uh, how do we stay present to it? Thank you, Kareen, and um, thank you all for being here. And truly, thank you for your work. Um, I think many of you serve uh, the most vulnerable 
and um, I am uh, I I feel very humble to be in your company. So, in reflecting on uh, what would serve um, your community, uh, one of the uh, thoughts that I had uh, really has uh, come out of my work uh, in my younger years as an anthropologist. And um, I, I was at Columbia University at the Bureau of Applied Social Research and then did field work uh, in Africa, uh, in the country of Mali, with a community, with a culture called uh, Dogon. And uh, that culture um, was a, uh, in the midst of a remarkable process that happens once every 53 to 60 years. And I was fortunate to uh, uh, be doing field work uh, in this uh, culture um, at the sort of midsection, uh, if you will, of this uh, uh, it, it, huge cultural endeavor. And the uh, vision that was being enacted, um, we would call a rite of passage. And th this rite of passage um, was a context where the entire culture went through an experience of death and rebirth. And it was um, sitting in the cliffs of the Sahel, of the Southern Sahara, that I realized that um, in our own Western society, um, there was uh, an extreme absence of rites of passage and that there was a displacement um, to other parts of our society uh, of the urgency of the natural calling um, that is uh, about transformation or renewal or redefinition, reorganization. And I uh, came back um, from uh, Mali with feeling very humbled, but also concerned about um, our psychosocial landscape. How do people navigate um, a maturation process um, that is not deemed to be both sacred and also radical? And so as I was uh, taking time before um, we met each other, uh, I thought, you know, this, uh, I, the word unprecedented, this extraordinary, uh, uh, in many ways, horrifying situation that we're going through as an entire global community, which is not separate from uh, the climate catastrophe, which is in fact interrelated, um, is in one way, if we, if we look at it deeply, a rite of passage. Um, now, if you know the work of Arnold Van Hennep, who influenced Murcia Iliadi and Joseph Campbell and so on, Van Hennep was an early ethnologist. Um, in the 1920s, he wrote a book called Rites of Passage. And he uh, articulated three phases in a rite of passage. And um, it's really weird. They, they line up, I think, with what we're experiencing now. And the first phase um, is separation. And I would say the physical isolation that many of us are going through right now, um, but also separation from our jobs, separation from uh, the sense of security, separation from a stable money market, so to speak, an economy that, of course, most of us who are in this circle right now uh, realize, we realize that it is an economy capitalist-based and um, based on uh, at, uh, giving advantage to a very small sector of people. 
Um, we are separated often in this situation, many of us, from those whom we love. And um, in the process of uh, separation, um, which is uh, very alarming for many, and I think about women, for example, who are sheltering with abusive spouses. Um, this is a, a situation that is requiring us to um, look deeply into what it is to be socially isolated, separated from the pseudo-certainty of our society, and um, also separated from any sense of what lies ahead. So this is the first phase of a rite of passage. And um, as a global community, um, we are in it. And it is uh, important for us to explore both um, the power of solitude and of separation um, to deepen our lives. In other words, to call us into a time of uh, deep reflection and examination and exploration of our priorities. It's also a time when um, uh, many of us feel the uh, loss of agency, the loss of uh, autonomy, that we don't control our lives uh, anymore. Now, the second phase of a rite of passage is called the threshold experience. And it's kind of interesting, the word thrash and thresh come from the same root. And I would suggest um, that um, we are in the beginning, not even the middle of the threshold experience. And this is in relation to um, our experience, our lived experiences, individuals, as families, as communities and as a global community. And it means that um, everything that we uh, counted on to give us a sense of identity, certainty, safety, security um, is being stripped away. Um, what does it mean to have uh, oil, for example, uh, at minus 40? I, you know, this is a, a wild question to ask in this context. Is it um, uh, a, a great leap forward in terms of climate change? Or does it mean that we will be using um, th these uh, ancient uh, uh, gifts of decay of the plant world and animal world stored under the earth um, to uh, further... Uh, uh, damage our atmosphere and the lives of all species. So we are in a threshold experience now where uh, uncertainty is, is radical and where people are falling gravely ill um, by the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and where something that is invisible um, is uh, the virus is evoking uh, extraordinary fear um, and also radicalism that is uh, um, and high polarization um, as we see um, when our autonomy is taken away from us a certain sector do not want to engage in cooperation um, but are actually putting themselves and many at risk um, by uh, breaking out of isolation um, into uh, normal, so-called normal society. So we're, we're at a, a crossroads uh, right now that, um, that is characterized by a, a lot of uh, thrashing. And we're in a liminal state, um, as Arnold Van Hennep describes it. We are betwixt and between worlds. The world as we knew it, the economies that uh, some of us depended on, um, the institutions uh, that we trusted and uh, have relied upon, um, relationships that have given us a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives as family members or as colleagues working to uh, serve others. Everything is being turned on its head. And we do not know what is ahead of us. Now, um, my uh, beloved uh, teacher, the late uh, Bernie Glassman, uh, 
um, when he decided to move out of the very uh, fancy Zen center in uh, north of New York and into the slums of Yonkers um, with his wife, Jishu Angu Holmes, um, one of the things that they determined was that um, uh, it was essential for us to dedicate ourselves to making peace in the world. And they looked at the, the experience of practice and the experience of service. And um, out of this, they articulated what um, came to be known as the three peacemaker tenets. And the first tenet is the tenet of not knowing. And um, this is uh, part of being uh, at the threshold, and it's also part of grief, um, the loss of our certainty. Um, is actually very important for us to explore. Um, that loss of certainty is actually based in uh, a much deeper reality than most of us wish to acknowledge. Um, we as Western educated people rely on facts, on our education, um, as a way to gain purchase and power in the world. But suddenly, um, we don't know. And the first tenet of not knowing um, is pointing to exactly this experience, first of bewilderment, of being on the threshold of um, not knowing what is ahead and not um, being able to really grasp what we have left. Um, it is though we're hanging on to a, a small piece of flotsam in the middle of a churning ocean with um, one certainty that that flotsam is going to be torn out of our hands. Now, not knowing um, why was that so important? And why is it uh, related to this threshold experience? Because when we're in this phase, um, we are trying to use um, the thought processes and the thought structures, knowledge structures of the past, in order to plan a sane and just future. But in actuality, for us to... Uh, move into a sane, unjust future. We cannot use the uh, worldview of the past. We have to actually let go of these structures of certainty that have um, actually caused immense suffering in our world for all species. So we're in an extraordinary time where um, we are called literally to make an ally of not knowing, to uh, come to terms with um, the actual truth of uncertainty, to understand that um, looking for security or pulling uh, uh, data from the past to uh, protect and predict the future is not going to be useful. We do not want to recreate the past that is behind us. And we are in this liminal state, all of us together. We don't know. In uh, my practice, I'm a old-time Zen person, and there are uh, wonderful koans or cases or stories that have lines in them that are just great. And um, uh, a Zen master said when asked uh, uh, a question, he said, um, you know, not knowing is most intimate. So uh, in this state, the things that the, have defended us from true intimacy, from true connection, um, even as we're sheltering 
uh, at a distance from each other, but those things are being stripped away from most of us. So that this other kind of intimacy that is rare but essential can reveal itself. So we're in the threshold. This is what someone has described as a portal. We're in the in-between place. And it is a place where deep grief is experienced, where fear is experienced, anger because we cannot control things, where it is essential that we have the capacity to ground ourselves at the same time that we're cultivating uh, an aspiration to literally wake up from the dream or the nightmare of the old world and to um, wake up to the possibility of creating as a global community a community that has been humanized by grief, a world which is sane, a world which is just, and a world which is compassionate. And we have to drop into not knowing. The second tenant that uh, Ji Xu and Bernie articulated is the tenet of bearing witness. It means not being a, ba a bystander. There is nothing worse than being a bystander. It actually means in bearing witness to not separate oneself from the truth of suffering, of confusion, of grief that is present at this time. We do a, a monthly uh, ceremony at Upaya called the Gate of Sweet Nectar. And in this ceremony, which is part of the tradition that uh, I come from, um, we invite all of the hungry spirits into the mandala, into the circle of our practice, and we feed them. We feed them through um, the aspirations that we as practitioners um, have cultivated, which are not any different than the aspirations, I believe, that um, you as people engaged in social and environmental transformation that you have dedicated yourself to. And that is to end suffering, to face it, to end it. So bearing witness means that we are not separate from, but like a good chaplain, we come alongside the experience of suffering. And in coming alongside the experience of suffering, we also have to be very uh, mindful of what I've articulated as edge states. That is a tendency to um, fall off the high side of altruism into what has been called pathological altruism. Altruism that could harm us physically or mentally. Acts that are seemingly altruistic um, that could harm the very people that we're endeavoring to serve by disempowering them. Altruism that becomes pathological um, in the sense that um, the institutions that we're endeavoring to serve in are harmed by our actions, or we harm the institutions or even the nations or the earth that we're endeavoring to serve. So it's important for us to know an edge state like altruism and also empathic distress. Empathy is really important. We feel in resonance with the suffering, the difficulties, the plight of those who are less advantaged, who are advantaged, who are more vulnerable. But over-identification or super-objectification, both are problems. How do we learn to um, stay in connection, to be in resonance, but not to move into overwhelm?
So in this three-phased experience of a rite of passage, beginning with separation, moving into the threshold experience, uh, the third stage is of integration or return. And what we're doing in this, I believe, and at least I'm doing it, in this threshold experience that we're in is I'm asking myself, as grief arises, as anger is present, as uh, optimism burgles up, and then I think, you know, optimists think everything's going to turn out all right, um, it's better to be hopeful. I ask myself of whatever um, is arising in me, what are you teaching me now? What do I need to learn from this experience? And from the point of view of uh, social psychology, this is um, for us uh, developing uh, the capacity to have a metacognitive perspective that is to both be in the experience of churn, which many of us are, our institutions are, certainly my Zen center is, we're experiencing uh, extreme financial loss. We closed on the 9th of March. We say we're not opening till the beginning of August, but actually we might not open for a year or two years. We don't know. We're living in not knowing. And so I am constantly saying, what am I learning in this experience now? And what when this third phase opens up, the phase of the new normal, of normalization, what will grief have taught me? You know, last night before I went to bed, I read an article in the New York Times uh, written by an ER doctor, Helen Wong. And um, she's basically saying, uh, this, this world, our work in medicine will never be the same. We're not moving back into the old world, and we don't want to. So when we move into this third phase, the phase of return, what are the gifts? The, what is the wisdom? What are the insights that we want to bring over the threshold? And what is actionable? What will be actionable as we bring um, our experience, what we've learned, into this uh, new phase? And we don't know. I mean, I, I certainly don't know how long um, we will be thrashed. We don't know. And so not knowing, again, becomes an ally, and we then bear witness we are not separated from. And um, out of this, the third tenet is one of compassionate action. After deeply discerning, after honest learning, um, we hopefully have the foundation to meet the world that is emerging um, in a way uh, that is uh, healthy, uh, generative, and compassionate. So I want to just speak um, a little bit here to grief. Um, I think every day, whether it's acknowledged or unacknowledged, um, grief is touching our lives. And a student of mine recently uh, said something so uh, powerful. She said, Roshi, grief is love that has nowhere to go. Grief is love that has nowhere to go. So we are here in it. She said that to me uh, on a day when I was working with the truth that um, 
I myself was uh, suffering from unacknowledged grief over the death of uh, my teacher, over the death of uh, several close friends, and the uh, exigencies of my life had really not uh, allowed me to see that I needed to take the space to take the, the backward step, to um, work, to do the work of grief. And I'm grateful for her words um, and also the reflections um, that I've had the opportunity to share since that time. I, I believe that um, grief is deeply humanizing. I also believe um, that animals grieve, that elephants grieve, that cetaceans grieve. So it, I don't want to say that it, uh, it's just a human quality. But um, I can't, I'm not a biologist, so I, I can't uh, talk about animal behavior with conviction. Uh, I'm just a human, so I can only speak about the human experience. I look at grief as an opportunity for um, us to, in uh, a way that is not easy, um, to have our hearts break open, uh, not uh, simply break. And I also look at grief uh, as, as an opportunity for us to touch into feelings. Um, that are uh, calling to be explored in a way that is uh, tender and courageous. And we have to be patient with grief. And without acknowledging us, acknowledging our grief, I believe that um, uh, when we uh, go through the third phase of a rite of passage, as Van Hennep describes it, um, that not having deeply acknowledged our grief and worked it, um, that we will uh, move into the return with fewer gifts and a, a diminished capacity to uh, meet and serve the worlds that we're endeavoring to serve. So that's a, a lot of language for uh, uh, this uh, little time we have. But just to review, um, I think we're in a global rite of passage. Rites of passage have three phases, separation, the threshold experience, and then integration or return. One of the wonderful tools that we can use as we navigate the territory of threshold is um, the three tenets that uh, Glassman, Roshi, and Jishu Angyu Holmes uh, identified as what is it to sit with not knowing to what Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind. What is it to um, bear witness and out of our experience of not knowing, of being with radical uncertainty and not separating from that which is arising in our moment to moment experience, what is the compassionate action that we will engage in as individuals and as a global community um, when we collectively and individually make our way into the phase of return. Not returning to the landscape that we left, but to a landscape that is uh, yet to be revealed. Thank you, Roshi. Um, I really appreciate there's so much there. Taking that in, something that um, was was sent in an email that I've heard others echo is um, 
uh, inc you know, including folks close to me, is a question around sort of uh, survivor guilt. Like there is this separateness between people who are going through something and, and those of us who are sort of um, waiting to integrate. Um, and for, yeah, I think the question of what do we do, we do, do with that feeling, I think of the helplessness or the, of the guilt that's arising for folks right now. I think that's a really powerful question. Um, because I, I think that uh, survivor guilt um, is something that is felt not only in this situation where, for example, uh, uh, an elderly clinician uh, cannot go back into the workforce and serve. Or um, uh, I, as a teacher, am sheltering with 24 of my students and some other teachers here in a very uh, supported situation. And I think, wow, um, yeah, we can prepare food for the homeless shelter, but how do we deliver it without putting everyone else at risk? And I think that um, survivor guilt is uh, important and potentially extremely corrosive. Um, I feel like in terms of this circle of people, it's not as if uh, we're playing, at least I don't think, uh, computer games in our spare time <laughs> as we sit in our little uh, bubbles of privilege. Um, uh, I have a feeling that each one of you is doing the very best you can for your particular circumstances. And it's as though um, uh, uh, we buy into uh, the image that uh, it is not enough. We are not enough. We are not doing enough. And it is, I feel, um, uh, whether uh, talking, having been... Uh, gone to Auschwitz and um, heard uh, with Glassman Roshi and uh, borne witness to those who survived the camps, um, guilt is present uh, in much of that population of those survivors. But there's also another sector uh, of those survivors. And that is um, what uh, those individuals learned from uh, the horror and the courage and what they brought into the rest of their lives. It was, you know, from the Buddhist point of view, kind of their karma that they survived. So out of that experience in the camp came writers, came Viktor Frankl, came artists, came individuals who, um, experienced the threshold of the camp, survived, and could have fallen into survivor's guilt, but instead used the experience of uh, what they went through as a way to serve in the conditions that were given to them at the right time. So when, for me, I know my practice is not about uh, rejecting survivor's guilt. Um, it's again turning toward it, as I've suggested. What am I learning from me beating up on myself for um, not getting in my car, gassing up my car, driving down to the homeless shelter to Pete's and delivering food for those who are uh, at, at that homeless shelter? What do I learn from that guilt? You know, it is um, one of the most important lessons that comes up for me personally um, is uh, I could use a little more humility. And my own feelings of uh, inadequacy or not meeting a situation uh, at the sort of scope that I'd like to um, allows me to... Uh, appreciate how important it is um, to not uh, fall into uh, an evaluation of myself or of another um, where uh, I have this narrative in my head, I'm not good enough, or I didn't do enough, 
or I should have done better. And I ask, what am I learning here? And that's what I feel we should turn toward, you know, ourselves as our own, in a way, our text, our sacred text. This is a time for us to really uh, notice what is present for us. And then to inquire, to be curious, to open up a kind of grandmother's heart toward our experience, um, not uh, turn toward our experience with blame or to feel shame, but to um, engage in a kind of uh, realistic, but also um, uh, deep investigation of what is it um, that is showing itself to me at this time, not only about my life, but about uh, the lives of others. You, you talked about um, the opportunity to let, for grief to let our hearts be broken open and not just break. If you could say more about what that means. You know, grief has been um, described um, in, in a funny way, it's like an emotion uh, unto itself, but actually it has many valences from uh, sadness and sorrow to anger and so forth. And um, there's uh, a process that um, we are called to be patient with um, as we move through this landscape of grief. And we're given the opportunity um, now to be much more reflective and in touch with the multitude of losses that we've experienced in the course of our life as a result of uh, being in the experience of sheltering. So I feel like, um, you know, it's a hard gift to receive, but it is an important gift for us to receive, which is to open to the deeper landscape of grief. And I have often said, um, I believe that uh, Western culture is actually a, a culture of unacknowledged grief because we cling to things so fiercely and we are not comfortable with acknowledging the truth of impermanence. You know, ultimately everything will pass from us. Our material possessions, our relationships and, and the body. And so um, grief allows us to act, come into a different relationship with the truth of impermanence and to um, uh, acknowledge uh, that loss is part of the equation of life and how we uh, navigate loss, how we accept it, how we let it work us and also how we let it teach us uh, really depends on our will and care to face um, the truth of the losses that we're experiencing at this time. Roshi, thank you so much for, for everything that you've shared. A lot of gratitude and, and a lot of resonance and I think um, a lot of inquiry. Uh, for how we, we move forwards together. So thank you so much, Roshi. Thank you, Corinne, so much. It's just an honor to be here. And I hope something or other that I've stumbled through has been of some help in or service in um, being a bridge for you. And, and also I'm just reminding me as well, as we uh, navigate these very uh, mysterious and troubling times. Deep thank you to Roshi Joan Halifax, who you can learn more about at upaya.org. And thank you to Reverend Jennifer Bailey and Kareen Luck of Faith Matters Network for holding space for these community conversations and partnering with us to record this episode. You can learn more about Faith Matters Network at faithmattersnetwork.org. 
So we have some beautiful things going on right now to support you, to stay connected in community. And our theme for this week here at Irresistible is grief and joy. And so thank you for dropping into some deeper contemplation with us and some listening through this episode. We also want to invite you to join us if you're listening to this right when it comes out. On April 30th, 2020, we are having a beautiful night of singing for joy. It's a virtual gathering with the Thrive East Bay Choir. And we're gonna be singing liberation songs, enjoying some performances with instrumentation from the members of the choir, and also seeing lyrics on the screen to sing along. It is a time for us to raise our voices and breathe collectively and be in this not knowing time with some joy and some connection. So if you wanna participate in that, it's also the closing evening of a series of six weeks of something called Care Circle that we've been doing for a while now that uh, has been held by our friend BJ Starr and has been a really sweet gathering place where we've provided care and support and healing practice for over a thousand social justice leaders just in the past month. So if you wanna join that and sing with us on Thursday to close out strong from Care Circle, you can sign up for that at irresistible.org circle. And if you love this idea, but you're like, ah, I'm listening to this after April 30th, I missed it. You can still watch the video and sing along. We're gonna be live streaming it on our Facebook page, which is called Irresistible Movements. So just go to our Facebook page and check out the video and you can still enjoy. The other thing we're doing to connect and to learn and be in a time of preparation right now is that we're reading this incredible book by Kazu Haga called Healing Resistance, A Radically Different Response to Harm. And if you love listening to Roshi Joan Halifax, you might really extra love this book. It's published by Parallax Press, which is the nonprofit publishing division of the Plum Village Community of Engaged Buddhism that was founded by Thich Nhat Hanh. And you can learn more about joining book club at irresistible.org slash book club. We've got a live author conversation coming up in May that you can join online. Um, and also, Parallax Press is offering a discount code for anyone who wants to buy that book or any other. You can go to parallax.org and use the code podcast for 15% off. So listen, y'all, we'd love to be connected to you in those ways. Make sure that you follow or subscribe uh, to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening now. And check out our website with our whole full podcast catalog at irresistible.org. You can also sign up for our email list there and find lots of other ways to stay connected. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we love being in conversation with you there. So stay talking to us. Thank you so much to Zach Meyer at The Coal Room for audio production and Allison Thompson for social media. Irresistible Podcast is supported by Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Learn more at calliopeia.org. Sending love and looking forward to hearing you next week when we talk with Ejeris Dixon and Dove Kent about building power and adapting strategy to organize during pandemic. Hear you soon.